What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smoking Tire Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Crown and Caliber. Guys, you've heard me talk about Crown and Caliber a lot. Here's the deal if you're buying a luxury watch on the internet, you want to buy it from somewhere reputable, but you also don't want to buy it brand new because for most watches, that's just you're, you're just throwing money away. So, Crown and Caliber has an amazing selection of watches from Rolex, Omega, Breitling, Paddock, AP, Cartier, you name it, they probably got. It, over 2,000 watches in stock. Then they've got a team of watchmakers and technicians in-house to make sure these pieces are working as advertised. The pieces you see on the website are the actual pieces you're buying. But more importantly, you can trade up. You can trade in or trade out. Crown & Caliber buys watches from you. They'll trade watches with you, or they'll sell watches to you. You can do it all very easily at crownandcaliber.com. Uh, we've got a discount code. TST175 gets you $175 off your first watch at Crown & Caliber, but also they are giving away a Rolex Submariner. Really, really nice piece of hardware, guys. I've had a sub for a very long time, and it's dope. You can get one for free if you go to crowningcaliber.com slash TST. Crowningcaliber.com slash TST. Check it out. And if you're looking to buy a luxury watch on the internet, look no further than Crowning Caliber. We're also brought to you by Auto Tempest. Autotempest.com is the best place to find a used car on the internet. You know why? Because it's all of the internet in one place. Auto Tempest, all you got to do is you fill out the box one time and it searches the entire internet for those cars for you. It, it fills out all the rest of the website's boxes for you when you just do it once. Listen, you're a somebody. Your time is worth money. I know that and you know that. Don't waste it. Save it with autotempest.com. They've got your back. We love having them as a sponsor. They've been with us for a while. They compare all of those results all over the internet with national Craigslist, eBay, and AutoTrader. It's a great thing, guys. Autotempest.com for all your used car searching needs, whether you want to buy, sell, or you're just casually browsing. Lastly, I'm throwing in my own ads now. Westside Collector Car Storage. If you're in L.A. or if you come to L.A. a lot, you know what it is like to keep a sports car in this town. We have these amazing roads. We're so fortunate we get to drive them. We got PCH. We got the Angeles Forest. But then... The city sucks. It's annoying. Westside Collector Car Storage is here for you guys. We, we, it's, I designed it. We designed the facility with, with the collector in mind for the most convenient, the most secure, and the coolest place to hang out. It's, it's just ideal. Go to westsidecollectorcarstorage.com, see what it's all about. We're taking deposits and reservations for an opening that will be very, very soon. All right, guys, on this episode, we've got L.A. Times journalist Daniel Miller. Uh, Daniel has done a seven-part podcast about the life and uh, racing career of Big Willie Robinson, who was uh, a enormous uh, black Vietnam vet who, uh, after the L.A. Watts riots, uh, brought together the community by street racing with the blessing of the police. It's quite an interesting story, and he's in studio to tell it, along with his personal interesting family story about uh, cars in Los Angeles. It's Daniel Miller from the LA Times on the Smoking Tire Podcast. Hi, everyone. It be the Smoking Tire Podcast, a nice midweek show. Just want to start out with a shout-out to Lego, who I guess there's some team within Lego that builds... Like maybe, um, you know those full-size ones when they build a car that's the size of a car out of yeah, Legos? Yeah, yeah. 
Daniel Miller. Hi, are you, sir? Welcome. Thanks for to having the me. Smoking Tire Podcast from the LA Times. I want to thank Lego real quick because they sent me this box, and I didn't know, I didn't ask for it, I didn't know what was in it. No one's paying me to talk about it, but I opened this. See so the black box on the bottom. I was came about. It's really heavy. It's like fifteen pounds. It's made of Legos. It's like a black sarcophagus made of Lego bricks, and then inside the box was a Lego road with like painted lines and manhole covers and a fire hydrant with a stand on it and a model of my Lamborghini in, not in like the Lego Technic pieces, like the Porsche that we did, like in OG bricks, like in the way that they do the big cars for the auto shows and those displays. Like, so I don't know who made this thing, but it's extremely rad. And so you take the whole box apart you don't take it apart, but you just open the lid, and then you put the you take the assembly out, put the lid back on, and then the, the, the whole thing sits on top of the, the the sarcophagus, and it becomes a stand, but it's, like, dense. Like, I think that thing is solid Lego bricks. I don't think it's, like, a hollow thing, and it's real cool, and a commenter informed me that they do make gold wheels, and he put the part number there, so we're going to get the gold wheels, and then we are aces, but, it, that's, but shout out to Lego, because... That is extremely rad, and that's going to go with the new spot. <laughs> the box is like three times deeper than the uh, the car's roof. The box height. is huge. huge. The box is the size of like two shoe boxes stacked on top of each other. It's enormous. Anyway, hi, Daniel. Hey, hey. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lego made me a treat, so I'm very excited. No, about that's it. cool. It's like very you. 80s with the blocky yeah. OG Lego it's like blocks. It's like 8-bit. It's like an 8-bit, yeah, like Rad Racer car. Very yeah. fitting with the uh, Lamborghini of that yeah. era. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming down. Yeah, no, I'm really happy to be here. Happy to talk about Larger Than Life. And uh, uh, Zach and I were talking a minute ago about some of the cars in my past that I want to talk to you guys about, get your take oh, yeah. on them, too. So, yeah. I'm excited. I watched the. I watched like a five-minute um, uh uh, Jesus, like uh, the thing Zach sent me. What's the word for it, Zach? Like a I'm summation sorry. A of, summation the of the whole thing. Uh, the LA Times, like a five-minute video that the LA Times put together. Um, I think it's like an extended trailer, if you will. Sure. That thing, Remembering Street Racing Legend, Big Willie Robinson on YouTube. We can't play it, but we can show you the screenshot, which I thought was a nice summation. So, so who is Big Willie? And what is his deal? And why are we talking about him? Sure, sure. So, Big Willie Robinson was a legendary L.A. street racer uh, starting in the mid-1960s and really up through the 90s he had this vision of peace through wheels which I think can sound kind of hokey to some. It sort of does. Right. But it, but it also it's like we need to pick the lesser of two evils here. Right. Like if we can do some street racing we're not going to stab each other. Right. So, and, <laughs> like pretty much. And he really believed that and uh Although it may sound hokey, it actually worked. And uh, Big Willie and his group, the International Brotherhood of Street Racers, uh, wound up getting uh, buy-in from law enforcement starting in the late 60s. And this is happening after the Watts Get, riots. I'm sorry, getting a what? A bind? Buy-in. Oh, so, a buy-in. Support. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. And, when, so, and they had used it to establish a pseudo-legitimate raceway. That's right. Yeah. That, that happened in the mid-70s, and uh, eventually, with the backing of Mayor Tom Bradley, LA's first black mayor, they opened a raceway on Terminal Island in the port of Los Angeles. So Big Willie's vision was to get 
street racers basically off the streets yeah. and onto a track where they could do this more safely. And it, and it worked. He opened this raceway in 1975. The key to doing that, I think, is to actually open the track on the street. Because like, right? Because there's all these organizations that are like the take it to the track organizations. Sure. And like, they're doing the, you know, as, as you would say, the Lord's work, right? right. They're, doing the, they're doing good, getting these guys off the streets. And we joke, Zach and I have joked a lot about street racing. Zach made a little mini doc about street racing with some guys that I'm sure we'll get into, but like the key to this is that the track they built was on the street. That's Pretty right. Much. You effectively um, took the bridge onto Terminal Island in the port of LA and uh, drove onto a section of the island, and there was a drag strip there. And I think. Uh, what was really important was that Big Willie had a ton of credibility. He's this six foot six muscle bound titan. He'd been a bodybuilder. Imagine Big Willie. That's Big Willie. Like he looks exactly when you see his picture, you're like, yep, that's Big Willie. Exactly. Yeah. And so he had been a street racer on the streets and he and his group had a lot of credibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I mean, look that, at this guy. Big Willie looks exactly like, he's wearing leather pants that are pulled up to the level where your grandpa would pull them up to with a black belt with gold rivets in it and nobody would ever say shit to him about that. Hell no. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, there's stories of Big Willie getting in the back of a flatbed truck to sort of command the audience in the streets in the 60s. Uh -huh. This is a guy who was a natural-born leader and He looks like Andre listened. the Giant in that picture. He looks enormous. Right, so six foot six yeah. and, uh, you know... Uh, he f placed in the 1976 Mr. America competition in the tall category. I mean, this guy really was larger than life. Wait, they had a Mr. America? Do they still have a Mr. America? You know, I think the name has changed in recent and years. Is it, is it like Mr. Universe now? Uh, yeah, it could be that. It, or it may have just gone sort of to a much more vanilla name. But... Um, yeah, he, he really was a, a character. He was an actor on the side as well. So this was a guy who was almost like a quasi-celebrity, and he was able to sort of get young people to listen. And so they'd go to his track, and, you know, it wasn't like... Um, it, it was cool to go to his track. And yeah. I think that is the key, and that's the trick, right? To have a place that people want to go to, and that will bring them off the streets. And I think that was a big part of his vision. And, you know, I spoke to... And why aren't drag strips cool enough for people who street race well, i mean that's, that's i mean obviously it's like there's like the the illegality of it and whatever and like the same reason like high school kids smoke less weed when it gets le when it becomes legal you know i guess you don't have that but still i guess what was it about terminal island where it was like the street racers like i'm just about this one so the track i think it's fair to say was a bit rough around the edges in terms of its um sort of vibe and um, uh, build. Like, this was not a gleaming raceway, right? This was not Irwindale. This was a place where you sort of never knew who you might run into, so, like, it attracted this really eclectic crowd. And also, it's, you know, you're surrounded by shipping containers at a port. It sort of felt edgy, a yeah. little rough in a way that maybe other tracks don't. That's and true. I think like that every every action movie from 1995 to 2010 had a car chase that went through. Basically, actually, not even a place like Port of Long Beach. The actual Port of Long Beach, like literally gone in 60 seconds, goes through right there. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that's obviously um, uh, important to note, you know, at least one of the Fast and Furious films um, shot a scene basically uh, outside the gates of the old raceway. So this was a place that you know, sort of says street racer. Is. Yeah, yeah. And, and and if you've ever, I've gone down like, 
anyone who's ever worked in automotive media in LA has gone down there like at least once to shoot pictures in the middle of the night. I recall doing brake stands in a Chrysler 300 SRT for about two and a half hours somewhere around Terminal Island. Yeah. Right. It's a cool place to go. I, like, I totally get the appeal. Yeah. And, and it's, so, so it's not sort of like this ultra NHRA sanctioned racetrack like you might find elsewhere. And I think that that helps some of the racers feel like this was a more comfortable venue for them. All right. More importantly, how did this stop people from murdering each other? So Big Willie's message again. I know it can sound like who, cheesy. Wait, who was murdering each other at the time? We're well, talking about L.A. in the '60s. So he really 70s. he he really got to start after the Watts riots, which was which was um, you know a violent racial um, uh, riot in South Los Angeles that really pit law enforcement against civilians. The National Guard had to be called in. There was uh, many deaths, looting, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage, and he sort of rose up in the wake of that with a message that people needed to come together and you know cars are something that as you guys know and i certainly know in my own life can can unite people can break down barriers you know you don't have well, to it's a very like universal language you know it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what language you speak sometimes if someone's in a car and they show up and they say something in chinese but they like your car like you can tell that yeah. they're into it and then you can look at their car and it, it doesn't matter like oh, yeah. people get along Exactly. It's driving around uh, the Utah National Parks in an Lexus LX570, like brand new press car, this, bu- this bus full of Japanese tourists. None of them spoke English, but like the Japanese like working men saw me driving this Lexus LX and like freaked out, and they were all just like nodding approval, like yes, you know. Yeah, I'm not going to do some fucking racist impression. <laughs> I apologize for even trying, but you get the idea. But yeah, they're like they're, there was no words, but it totally. was like yes, we understand that this is a quality product. I mean, Panama with the buses, like these oh, are buses yeah. that they you know hop up and drag you ever, race. Have you ever fuck with them? I, you see them? I have seen that. Before. The Diablos Rojos, very cool, bro. You want to shit your pants? We'll set you up. <laughs> Serious? We know a guy. We will set you up, and I guarantee you, poo will come out. <laughs> Way to sell it, yeah. Um. Fucking Willie wouldn't have even fucked with these buses. These like, there's like, holes in the tires. There's some real sketch engineering happening in these things, man. That should be. I would. I would definitely watch a full doc on Diablos Rojo Street. Really racing. good time. Fucking yeah, crazy. Cool. Um, did it work? It did work, and and I know this because I spoke to um, cops, politicians, law enforcement officials, uh, people uh, in the upper echelons of the LAPD who said that when his track was open, crime related to street racing and 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 uh, related activity went down. And you know there are no crime stats for this because this is, you know. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, and we certainly tried to get our hands on those stats. They don't exist. But anecdotally, people said that this worked, and it brought people together. And of course, in the most basic of ways, if street racers, if fewer of them are on the streets racing, then the streets are going to be a little bit safer, right? right? But it did bring together gang members. Crips and Bloods were out at Willie's track racing, and they set aside their beefs to do it. Did, but, all right, in order to get the city to go, here you go, take this. Did he then have? Did he have to first prove that it would work by actually racing on the street and going? We're just going to be on this block, and if you let us do this over here, like we won't murder each other over there. Exactly. I mean, truly it's very pragmatic. I mean, the city. It's it's hard to believe because I live in this city and deal with the fucking bureaucracy of it. That that how bad it must have been for them to go. You know what? 
Fuck it. Okay. So, well, I, I, I would say, and this is a really important part of the podcast, and we get into this in the second episode of Larger Than Life. Basically, in talking to experts and people from that era, they said, look, the city was so broken after the Watts riots that, that, that the powers that be were so desperate to try anything to try to bring the community in South Los Angeles together that they were willing to back Big Willie. Now, look, he had some really strong advocates. Of course, in Mayor Tom Bradley, it helps to have the mayor on your side, right? Yeah. But he began in the late 60s street racing with the help of LAPD. LAPD would would basically help him block off a street. I mean, of course, we can't imagine that today, but it yes, really did happen. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely can. Can, can you imagine that? I can imagine that. I think if you got a movie permit, I can and you're imagine filming. It in yeah. A, yes, and I and B, I can imagine it in an entirely different context than that, but I could still imagine happening. Someone taking a just a, taking a straight bribe and doing it. Sure, I mean, maybe not in a squad car, but you know, just saying. I, I think yeah, but I think in a squad car, like nowadays, if someone films that squad car blocking it, then that goes up, and that yeah. person gets fired. But I think in this case, it's an interesting olive branch because. The Watts riots were so destructive. And if you listen to like the dollop, the three part story they did on the LAPD of like leading to the Watts riots, it was oh, yeah. really, I, did I mean, a while the ago. LAPD's reputation in the 80s and 90s was bad and it had been started long before that. So they were probably like, mm. our PR, PR, our reputation is terrible. Our relationship with the community is fucked. So if we can do any little thing to try to help that, like it's a very progressive thought by someone there to go, let's just, let's let's start working with this community a little bit. Exactly. And I think that the street racers I spoke to, uh, many of the members of the Brotherhood of Street Racers for, for this podcast, they don't have that same kind of dialogue with law enforcement or the powers that be these days. And they really lament that the relationship has deteriorated from what it once was. You know, Big Willie died in 2012. So sort of their leader, their yeah. figurehead is not around. And, and he really was a, a magnetic personality who could bring people together. Do the it's to me, it, we've got some pictures up of these, you know, the guys who I guess used to, you know, hang out with Big Willie and they're wearing their their colors and stuff. Just some attractive jackets. I'll 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 concede. But how do you get out of a fucking ticket wearing a jacket that just says "Street Racers" across the back of it? Even in your seventies, I don't think you could talk your way out of that one. And Nervous Glenn, there, the the guy in the foreground, I believe he is Nervous in his Glenn. 70s. That's his name. That's his nickname. <laughs> Nervous really? Glenn. Is he? What's he nervous about? Oh, it's actually covered in the podcast. There's a great story. You want to hear the story about his nickname? Well, I don't want you to like scoop yourself. I don't want you. I don't. I would like people to go listen to your podcast. Sure. But give us. Can you give us the, a tease about the, it? The basics of the story is that Big Willie was in a drag race, and <clears throat> it it was sort of it had gone sideways from the start, and there was some questions about um, the rules being broken, and Big Willie and his foe looked like they might come to blows over this, and Nervous Glenn raced up to Big Willie's side and whipped out a gun. And pointed it at Willie's enemy, and Willie basically tells him, "Don't get nervous, don't get nervous." And the nickname Nervous Glenn is born from that. Was <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? not expecting that at all. I thought he was like, "Oh, I wear a helmet when I race," and everyone's <laughs> yeah. like, "What are you crazy?" No, there's like, yeah, I I picture I picture Big Willie as like uh like kind of like the Black Dominic Toretto a little bit. He kind of came off that way in the in the five minute video clip I yeah. watched. He came off as real Toretto ish taking racing like real seriously oh yeah this like, was the thing you know racing was in his blood it was a way of life for him i mean he lived by what did his, he drive 
he drove a 69 uh, Charger Daytona with a Hemi, and it was a factory Hemi. Huh. Uh, he called it the a King Daytona. Daytona as a drag car, huh? Yeah, and he, cool. he had it. Um, he 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 bought it with the Hemi in it, but he eventually had it souped up at Keith Black Racing Engines, which is a legendary Hemi tuner here mm-hmm. in, in the Southland. Uh, his wife Tamiko, who was also a racer, had a matching factory Hemi that was called the Queen Daytona. And see, this um, is pretty pimp. Oh, is that it right there? The big Willy. So that's actually another car. Is, there, is it a replica? That was actually, it was not a replica. That was another car of theirs that didn't have a Hemi, but it is a 69 Daytona. That sold Pull at that auction. Up. That's, an, that's a very, that's a nice, attractive uh, race car. Yeah, so that was um, that. That was not a car that they actually really drag raced, mm-hmm. but um, it was their car with a lot of heritage. It's called the Duke and Duchess Daytona. This car sold at uh, auction uh, in spring 2018 at the Mecham Auctions uh, in in uh, Indianapolis. I think for about two hundred three thousand dollars with um, the premium. It seems low. You Doesn't know, it? it? That was really interesting. It seemed a little low, but some people said to me uh, in Indy when I was there for the auction, they wondered whether Big Willie was famous enough nationally that his name was really sort of an uh, uh, an additive thing for the mm. price. And somebody sort of said aloud to me, almost in a, in a really worried way, they worried that the person who bought the car would paint over all the custom lettering and just have a, have a Daytona. I can't. That would be... That would be I don't sad, think it would happen, it? No, I, and I don't think, think so. it would happen. But the the buyer was anonymous. Uh, the buyer was not actually there in the room, and had a proxy bidding on his or her behalf. So we don't know who bought it or what happened to the car. Uh huh. And it was never seen again. Never seen again. Damn. That's sad. That's cool though. I mean, I really I like that. I I can't recall ever seeing a Daytona drag car really view no. Jack? No, I mean it was always a road course oval like that was what they're known for. I wonder how uh, how the aero really improves it in just the quarter mile if it makes a big difference. Probably not. I mean actually the the shaped front end probably helped a little bit Maybe, right yeah. to the top, but I think it's also just like not many things have a presence like that car. <laughs> like even in the muscle car world, yeah. it's like what was it like 20 feet long it's like two feet longer yeah, than anything it's, else yeah it's like four inches longer than a suburban it's like yeah. for his i don't know him personally but like it from the outside that would kind of suit his personality i guess certainly i mean he was a showman and this was the perfect car for a showman of that era yeah it's kind of cheeky too i noticed the detail on the other one i don't know if it's on all the cars but the one that you said sold to Meekum. you see it said number 747 on the wing which i thought was is pretty cheeky but uh it's a really interesting look for a drag car it's just you don't I just I've never seen it before. It's very like unique. Yeah. The only one I've ever even really seen like on slicks and skinnies like that is like the fucking Joe Dirt car. Yeah. Like, yeah, so, yeah. So that was a Hemi Daytona, right? Yeah. No, I know that's it's great. And maybe the the one do you say the one that sold a Mecham was not a real Hemi? It was not a Hemi. It was a four forty. Oh well, so that I mean that might have yeah. also been the value. Was it like an auto too? Because that could also be it as well. But yeah, I think it might have been an auto. Um, do we know Big Willie's best times? So this is obviously hotly debated by um, uh, members of the Brotherhood of Street Racers. Of course, uh, I've asked that question many times, and they would always say, look, a real street racer is never going to tell you his real time. But um, I did unearth- They're supposed old... to have timers to tell you the real time. So, I mean, to give <laughs> you a sense- Or did they just race heads up the whole oh, time? Was it like pinks? So, did they go? Did they race with a flagger? So they would race with a flagger, and Big Willie was off in the flagger. I mean, they had a Christmas tree. They, they had lights. But, um, you know, they would often turn off the, the timing equipment. Um, this, you know, they wanted to recreate Doesn't the street if racing you win vibe. By yeah. an inch or a mile, winning's winning. Um, but uh, so 
yeah, Willie, um, uh, to answer your question about time, so I found an old car magazine from the early 70s that mm. said, I want to say the King Daytona ran in the low 12s. Okay. And that's look, probably fast for that's fast for a streetcar in the 70s. Right. This was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, you can buy, what, a, a Hellcat and you s- smoke that time in, oh, yeah. you know, in a heartbeat without even trying. You know what I'm trying. driving this week? I'm driving, a, I'm driving a, the Hellcat Jeep, the Trackhawk. But from Hennessy, it has a thousand horsepower. I heard you guys talking about it on the show last it week. It is. <laughs> I drove it to fucking physical therapy this morning. It's hilarious. I mean, it's it's so stupid, but but it's fun. It's a thousand horsepower Jeep Grand Cherokee, and it's glorious. Yeah, that's outrageous. <laughs> you know, it's glorious because it's actually comfortable. It's got great seats. It's got good, good suspension yeah. and stuff like that. You know, it's it's silly and fun it so it does zero to 60 in 2.7 seconds it weighs 5300 pounds that's insane so i mean silly. i will tell you as part of our reporting on big willie i wanted to sort of compare the modern um uh, dodge hemi cars to the iconic 69 mm-hmm. hemi daytona so we found a, an owner uh, in southern california of a 69 uh, hemi daytona and i dodge uh, lent the la times um, a, a Hellcat Red Eye and um, a Charger Hellcat. So we had those three cars. And uh, we did a, a photo and video shoot uh, with the uh, Red Eye and the 69 um, Hemi Daytona. Had them side by side, sort of were able to compare them, see what sort of influences we could find in the new car from the old car. It was it was fascinating. Old car is terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's okay. We For most things, it. yeah. We can say it. It's all right. They're rough. They're hard. They're they're rough, right? They beat well, you up. Look, I cars. drive I drive a seventy two Datsun two forty Z. So Do you? Good I'm, for you. I am used to you know vinyl seats, no yeah. AC, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, but yeah, you know you 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 forget how far we've come. Yeah, it's it's the, you, you're very tired at the end of. My, do you know Mike Musto? You know, have you met him before? He he he's written for a bunch of people. He just got a gig with Hemmings, right? Is he with Hemmings right now? Uh, Haggerty. Right? No, 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 not Haggerty. Hemmings. Okay. He just picked up a gig with Hemmings, but he's done a bunch of different stuff. He's been around for a while. He's a real muscle car guy, and he has a 68 yeah. Charger and a Daytona clone with a big 500. I think. Of, oh, no, that one's a 500 bigger. cubic inch something or other. It's a big, but like, and it's great. It, it works. It's got nice brakes, good suspension, and it goes around corners and stuff. It's cool. But you're so tired at the end of the day after you drive it. It's brutal. And even and all the all those old cars. Yeah, those are, it's a visceral experience driving a car. Like there that. it is. Look how pretty this is. It's just got so much black. It could be none more black. This is the blackest. It's fantastic. Really good Daytona. That's the charger. He's got a charger and a Daytona. Um, so the podcast is how many episodes? Seven episodes. <clears throat> nice. And so is it the whole life of Big Willie, or is it focused on one specific area? It's his whole story from start to finish. A lot of twists and turns. Yeah? How long did it take you to do it all? It took about a year to create the podcast and, and the written stories and other things we did. Um, I had first heard about Big Willie uh, a year prior, so back in 2017. I was working on a story um, that involved me going out to visit a guy named Ted Moser and his company, Picture Car Warehouse. Oh, yeah. And so that they place out- is cool as hell, right? Very cool place yeah. in the valley. And they outfit- They do what you could probably guess they do. Right. Yeah. So they outfit your cars for movies, uh, uh, TV shows, and you know, it's a it's a trip to go there. You've got like the Bud Light uh, Lincoln Continental from the Super Bowl commercial a couple years ago. Got a bunch of 60s New York taxi cabs. It's a trip. Yeah. I mean, they have a bunch of like regular cars. And it's like, if you have a, I need to like fill a neighborhood 
in from 1974. They're like, okay, and they show up with a whole neighborhood full of like period cars and make it look like the 70s or whatever. It's awesome. Right. So I'm 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 wandering around the lot with Ted. Um, I'm working on a story that involves him and has nothing to do with Big Willie. And we stop at this broken down race car, and it sort of looks like a Daytona, but it's not quite a Daytona. It's got Is a big that rear the wing, fairly janky looking thing there. That's it right there. So what this is is it's it's a it's 1966. Like a drift <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's a 66 Plymouth Barracuda. Obviously the roof's been cut off, and it's got this strange rear wing. And he points at the car and he says, "Well, you know, if you're a car guy, because I told him I was into cars, he says you should know what this car is." And I give him some dumb look. Clearly, I have no idea what he's talking about. And he says, "You know, this was my friend Big Willie Robinson's car." And he was a legendary LA street racer and he toured across the country with this car. And you should know who he is. He started dropping some big names. He said he was friends with Paul Newman. He was friends with Steve McQueen. He knew the mayor of Los Angeles. And I'm listening to the story, looking at that rusty old car, and I'm thinking, this can't be true. So I go back to the office and I start doing some research. I start looking at our own archives at the LA Times. And it turns out that what I'd been told was real. And I couldn't believe it because I'd never heard of Big Willie. And that's what launched me on this project. So what of his car, that the thing that was sitting at Picture Car's warehouse, like what, it's okay, that was his car, but like what, it was a Daytona, but like how, why is it like this? So this car came after the King Daytona. Okay. His King Daytona was destroyed as the King, the Queen Daytona was also destroyed in the early seventies. This was Big Willie. Destroyed like in a crash or a mysterious Well, I don't want to give too much away. Oh, sorry, okay, gotcha. Certainly troubling circumstances Let's just say for there Willie's was nothing car. we could do about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it involved a, a dip in an acid tank. Fuck out of here. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Now we now we're going to go. Now but now I'm hooked in the podcast. So he was, after- he was fucking committed to racing, man. <laughs> when I I heard parts of the of the story of the podcast, I, I won't give away, but I was like Wow, this was not just like oh, I like racing. I'm gonna bring all the kids together. He's like, I'm also fucking people up on the strip. <laughs> yeah, he was serious. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this was the next car after the King Daytona was destroyed, and uh, it's a '66 Plymouth Barracuda, um, uh, a Hemi motor from Keith Black Racing Engines, and because Willie by that time had become known for wing cars, mm-hmm. he sort of grafted a wing onto the back of it, sculpted the nose cone to look like a Daytona, and called it the Police Daytona. You may have seen it kind of look like it had police colors. Uh-huh. And this, I think, at least my interpretation is, this sort of represents his sense of brotherhood with the police, that he would have a drag racing car that sort of looked like a cop car. Do they, I mean, is there a relationship between these guys and the people that actually do the cops that race the kids that on the drag strip? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. So, so um, Like a direct relationship? Yes. So much later in the 90s, Big Willie connected with some officers who were behind LASD Motorsports, yeah. which is um, a sh- LA Sheriff's Department organization. Uh, uh, it's a nonprofit, and they, they have some dragsters they take to tracks. Street racing made safe? Is that what it is? Something like, something like that? It's always like race the cops race or something. Race the cops, yeah. yeah, you yeah, yeah. Race, race a fox body yeah. or whatever. Back where I'm, I'm from in New York. Where did you grow up around here? I grew up in LA. Okay. In New York, the cops, we had, you know, there was a big dare thing in the 80s and 90s, whatever. Yeah. And they would, they would always t- confiscate the drug dealer's cars, put dare shit on it, and then they'd either parade them around and go, ha ha, look what we got, or turn them into the 
race cars that they would drag race the kids at English Town. So there was like a 95 like Viper on like chromes that they would like drag race. Like so cool. when me and Larry would go to English Town with our Mustangs, like sometimes like there would be the cops there and the kids racing and there was like a Viper and a Camaro, like a F-body Camaro and shit that they'd confiscate. And they're like, clearly crime doesn't pay and the kids are like, well, that car's pretty nice. That, that Viper's like, sweet, dude. did for a while. <laughs> Guy did all right. He only did six months and he had a Viper. Like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but so there is, yeah, so it's a direct relation. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Cool. How did you end up uh, researching car stuff in the first place? I mean, you said you drive a 240, so you obviously are a car fan. Yeah, so I kind of grew up immersed in the world of cars. Um, my family, uh, I come from three generations of car dealers. Um, mm. My great-grandfather was a car dealer. My grandfather was a car dealer. Uh, he was um, uh, one of the uh, early Datsun dealers in Southern California. Cool. And then my dad and my uncle took the business over. It closed in 2005, but I grew up on a car lot uh, in Culver City. It was called Culver City Import Group. Oh, cool. Uh, Nissan, Mazda, Subaru, Suzuki, Hyundai. So all imports. Oh, fun. And, did you, and so you, they imported them for direct when it was sort of a gray market-y kind of thing? Or? No, no. These were you know licensed dealerships. Oh, okay, cool. And... Um, and uh, you know, I grew up with my dad. Uh, you know, taking me to school in a 300ZX in the early 90s when that was nice. just like the coolest car. They were cool. Yeah, they were super cool. Uh, RX-7 from the same era. Two, yeah. Well, my dad did have the two plus two. Yeah. My grandfather drove the turbo. Yeah. Uh, in black. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was the great RX-7s from that era. The the first WRX that came to America five six years later. So Those I felt one WRXs. It was like oh shit. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was go. a big deal. And I've been waiting for that car. Yeah, because I had a Legacy GT in high school and I sold it after. I was like, I can't do any mods to this thing. And yeah. then the WRX came out and was like, Pfft. right. And it was something like 225 horsepower, I think but, so, yeah. but it was, it was it a felt, lot of horsepower. It, it felt like a lot. It had a good shove on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was always into cars as a kid. Uh, you know, my dad would bring him a stack of car magazines. I'd, I'd uh, tear through them. I worked on the car lot a little bit uh, later. And, um, you know, when I went uh, to college, uh, I after years of begging, my dad gave me my grandfather's 240Z. So this stuff that was always important to me, and it wasn't just about like the speed and the fun of driving. I had a real sense of sort of like, you know, my family's history and also a little bit of nostalgia when I was in that Z or when I was at the car lot. So it, it was always a big part of my life. Well, for you, it was like cars put food on the table, ha- you know, paid for the house, like. I get. I don't know. I feel like it'd be more important because of that. You're like cars are cars have made my world possible. Versus cars are something we enjoy. Yeah, it was. You know, I I, I can remember my dad would go to you know conferences, um, you know car shows, meetings uh, with you know Nissan or Mazda corporate where they'd unve- unveil a new car, and you know it really mattered that 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 new version of the Altima delivered, right? Yeah. Um. So it, it was just it was a big part of our life and um you know the car business is a brutal business to yeah. be in um, but your but your family wasn't just in they were also enthusiasts because sometimes you've got yeah. you know dealers where it's okay it's the business like i have a friend who's a car dealer and they he just couldn't give a shit about the cars besides like making customers happy anything but like sure he doesn't care when there's some new crazy thing right. coming out it's not excited about it. he doesn't drive the good stuff home you know he drives some basic you know i don't want to say what the brand is but like sure you know, but but uh, it sounds like if your dad is coming home in the cool car and your grandfather is that they that they cared about that kind of stuff oh yeah they were always into cars i mean my grandfather has amazing stories from the 60s so he had a um 
a, a used car lot in the mid '60s in Culver City um, called Stick City, and the sort of wind up was they only stole sold stick shift cars. Really? That's exactly. Rad. And so he would. My dad tells You'd me you probably do well with something like that now. I can hear I, Jalopnik I, running there, oh, towards there, Culver City. No, what's the wagon dealer? <laughs> There's a dealer that only sells oh, wagons yeah? now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's exclusively wagons. Pioneers only. They fucking, well, there's a Wagoneer place, too. Yeah, Actually, no, I know those guys. Uh, it's called Wagon Master. Right, right. right. And they charge all the money. Yeah. Um, um, how but, Stick City, though. So, That's so, great. so I, I, you'll get a kick out of this. So my dad and my grandfather remembers this. We still talk about it. My grandfather's in the podcast. My He would come home on a you know a Tuesday, and he'd have a Gullwing. He took it in trade. <laughs> Yes. Or he'd come home with a, you know, with a Shelby Cobra, took it in trade. And, you know, he'd sell the Gullwing for like $12,000, yeah. which was a huge sum of money at the time. And he did really well on that yeah. deal. Of course, he'd like to have the Gullwing back. Of course, but that's like, that's mm-hmm. how that business would go. Yeah. We had Bruce Meyer in here the other day who said he dailyed a Gullwing that he bought for $4,000 in 1962. I mean, it was, it's like, it's like stories. It's like, what? We got the best response from that. We're going to have Bruce back on again. He's great. He was kill. He killed it. Yeah. And we got his thing, the American car cruising this Sunday at uh, the Peterson Museum. It's like eight to noon. We're going to check that out with Vinny's caddy and the thousand horsepower Jeep, I think. Um, He said, maybe I could drive his Fox body police car. He's a fully policed fox body oh, police wow. car like everything works all lights and sirens everything i don't know how it has a plate on it <laughs> yeah only because it's bruce <laughs> it rules he brought it to radwood um i'm so that's so dope though to be in to be in a california car family is like a good that's a good history to have you know mm-hmm. what i mean what are some of your other like because you is your normally you're, you want a car beat or do you, is, that, is that how your LA Times gig works? So I'm not on the car beat, although around the time I started working on the podcast, I did do a handful of car reviews for us. And I'd always wanted to try it just because it's sort of, you know, always been something I've been fascinated by. And I have to tell you, I wrote maybe four or five reviews over the course of a year or two. Mm-hmm. I found it brutal. I thought it was so difficult to sort of translate my thoughts on a car that I'd spent a week with into, you know, a 1,200-word story. Yeah. Um, The key is to write as little about the car itself as possible. Learn that from Jeremy Clarkson. (laughs) Take a hard laugh and be like, bacon is made of (laughs) pork. (laughs) You end up, you're talking about... And that's why the Ultima GTR is, you know, (laughs) bad for you, but delicious. I mean, I really admire and respect, you know, the the great critics, guys like, you know, Dan Neal, the Wall Street Journal, people who know people who can sort of uh, uh, bring you into their world and inside their head and, and give you a sense of what this car is actually like. I'm to go in his head, you need a fucking dictionary to get your way out of that thing. <laughs> you know, he used to be the car critic at the LA Times, won a, LA Times, uh, won a Pulitzer for uh, automotive criticism at the LA Times. Um, and the photo of him is amazing. <laughs> the LA Times photo? I'll, I'll keep talking, but you'll laugh. <laughs> You've seen it before, but you will laugh. So, uh, I, anyhow, I have so much respect for people who do who do it for a living. You know, automotive criticism is it's it's a tightrope walk. Um, so, I reviewed a handful of cars for us. Um, reviewed, you know, the LC five hundred. That's a good car. I did enjoy that a lot. It's yeah, a fucking good car. Oh my god, you're right, Zach. That picture. Dan is. <laughs> oh, cool, man. Dan is. <laughs> How chill is that? What did I win? I mean, I'm good at this. <laughs> and is that is that Putin while he's still at hair? <laughs> Next to Dan? That's very serious. Columbia yeah. University president uh, um, Lee Bollinger. Bollinger. I, know, I wonder, inside I wonder baseball if he's related to the Bollinger Motor guys. I people just, watching I just the show. Um, that's yeah. He he is a he is a smith of words. Yeah, fantastic I mean, critic. I mean, whether it's a great food critic like you know the late Jonathan Gold of the LA Times, 
um, or somebody like Dan Neal. I mean, criticism is 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 you know when it's good, it's good. I like Jonathan Gold. I didn't like it first, and I started reading some more of his stuff, and I I've been turned on him. I like him now. There's a restaurant in Venice called Felix. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. It's um, Evan. What's his last? Funk. Evan yeah. Funk, right? And it's there's, it's like three months ahead. You got to get a reservation in this place. It's pasta. It's handmade pasta, and I guess he makes like all of it. It's really expensive and whatever. And I got a reservation a long time ago, and my wife and I went last week, and uh, we didn't think it was that great. He his method is to really undercook the pasta. It's al really al dente, really al dente, intentionally. And and, and uh, I guess Jonathan Gold was not a fan either, and he flat out said, "This guy makes pasta wrong." Like, that's just like what he said. Like, like he just makes it wrong. I'll have to read that's the review. Three months. Yeah, it was really funny. So yeah, the critic. You have to be able to. You know, there's a place with a, a, a list of three months, and you have to be able to go. You're doing. You're doing right. it wrong. And does you know even if even if you know he's still. Well, it's the hard part when you, when you drive a ba- like a car that has a fundamentally bad aspect about it, and you go, ah man, people put like tens of thousands of, do- of of hours into this and designing it. And, and, you know, a lot of them tried really hard. Yeah. And you're going to sit there and be like, this is incorrect. And you go, this, sometimes is, it's this right, is you're where right. you landed? This, right. <laughs> you, after all of that, this is what you actually landed on? Fuck, we're in such trouble. Uh, it happens, though. But usually when you go on, you can usually, if you go on the press launches, if you have one of those moments, like, you've got, how did you end up here? They can usually explain to you how they did end up there, and you end up with a little bit more sympathy. True, very true. A little bit more. Sometimes I'm like, you got to be shitting me. Fiat Chrysler's um, nav systems were not colorblind friendly huh. until very recently. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. but otherwise, it was like the best system. It's, no, it's good. Like, no, it's good. But, the, but when you put a map, uh, put a destination in, and it made the map line it, to a colorblind person, same as the other road lines. So you couldn't see the map. This thing was just floating. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Wow, that's wild. It happens. So wait, did you um, did you want to be like a journalist, journalist, and you tried doing car reviews and then took a left, or did you? What angle did you enter this from? Sure. No, I grew up wanting to be a reporter. I wrote for my high school paper, I wrote okay. for my college paper, and I and I am a business journalist by trade. I have long written for the business section of the LA Times. You I go to school for journalism. No, I went to UCLA, and uh, the advice I had gotten from a guidance counselor was: if you're interested in journalism, just sort of write for the school paper and you know read a lot of books take a lot of history classes a lot of english classes so that's kind of the route that i took um i had an amazing experience experience writing for the daily brew and you know you sort of learn on the fly how to be a reporter and i had been a sports reporter at the time uh covering the ucla football team you know where you're 19 years old and you're flying across the country to go see them play oklahoma Get their ass kicked by Oklahoma, and uh, you get That's some. That's probably a fun gig. I yeah. mean, I bet you feel extremely legit if someone's flying you around at nineteen to report on a sports event. Yeah, I think it was a. It was a for me personally. It, it was a thrill. You know, I grew up a Bruin fan. My parents went to UCLA, also, so it was fun to be doing that. But also, you know, it's sort of. You know, I think as a 19-year-old, where you can have a lot of distractions, you sort of rise to the occasion when you're given that kind of opportunity. Mm. Um, and, and so I loved it. And I feel very lucky that I, you know, came upon a career that I sort of have always loved. And, 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 it, and, it, and it wound up being what I had hoped it would be. I think so many times when you sort of chase a dream, then you finally realize that it's not quite what you had hoped for, right? Well, yeah, when it becomes a job, yeah. I mean, any a lot of people have pretty dope lives if you distill them down into five or six Instagram posts or 10 minutes of video. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, my life is fucking sick. 
in Instagram, but like, yo, I'm doing emails for like six hours a day. Like that shit ain't glamorous all the time. Like this right. much is glamorous. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm perfectly happy what I do. But say, and you know, <laughs> but like, it's it doesn't. You're you know you got to see the whole picture, right, and right. and and a lot of. Uh, Jobs become jobs. Yeah, you know, and, and I actually Once the shine wears off. And actually, that's one of the things that I've wondered about. You know, not to go too deep, but like, I'm I'm such a car guy. I love cars, but you know, when it became my job to write about cars, even just very briefly, that became so difficult. And I wondered, you know, if sort of you know my love for it either got in the way or just sort of made it that it was hard to do it as a job. Well, if the cars aren't exciting, it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about. You're, this week it's a the Kia Optima, next week it's the Altima, and then you're in a Mazda CX-5. I mean, yeah, this that would be difficult. Sure. If you figure out how to drive exciting cars, it, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Because now you've got sensations you can talk about. You drive an Altima, there's no sensations. Right, you just right, get, right. you got in and then you went over there and then you got out. Like, that's it. So yeah. it's hard. No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, one, one of the reasons why I love working on this Larger Than Life podcast uh, is that it, it was about cars, but it was also really a character study. And it, and it was about this world that I got to you know, immerse myself in for a year or so. And so it could sort of scratch that itch of, you know, learning about cars, researching cars, going to car auctions, things like that. But it wasn't like banging out car reviews, right? Yeah. And it was telling this sort of, you know, untold story, this quintessential LA tale. Well, I think I, the reason I, I kind of, I, I'm kind of doing like the career day thing right now is because so many people email me and they go, how do I do that. The thing that you're that thing you're doing, how do I do that? And I right. go, I don't know, but you probably shouldn't start by doing car reviews because it's saturated and it's hard to make your perspective mean something in such a saturated market. I'm fortunate in that I am kind of known at this point. So if I do a car review, people go, Matt Farah is coming from here and so this is why he thinks this, but if you're not, but so that's why I think it's your angle is interesting because you're writing about cars, but you're not, you know what I mean? You're not doing that. And so I tell people frequently, find something else to write about in cars. Like, there's lots of things. You just got to, like, pick a direction, you know? Sure, sure. Um, Do you think the the um, career advice you got from that guidance counselor was correct? Like, instead of saying go into journalism, go, you, you know, get your education in other aspects of writing and kind of uh, dissecting information? I actually do think so, and I have plenty of you know incredibly talented colleagues who went to J school, uh, and J school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's and, funny because I went to the University of Pennsylvania. We called it J school, but for a completely different reason. Oh really? <laughs> J school of Colorado. Lachaim. Oh, that was joint school or something. Oh no, it was Jews. It was like it's like all oh, like seventy percent of the white people there were Jewish. It was a lot of a lot of Jews, including myself. So so. J school's good one. <laughs> so, so for me it worked. Yes, and you know everybody's different. But yeah, I, I thought I, I majored in history at UCLA. I minored in poli sci. I, I I had to write a lot of papers. I had to read a lot of books. But I think for me that that really did work. And look, when you're at a paper like the Daily Brew and it comes out every day, you know you get paid a small stipend too. And they're flying you to go cover events. It feels real, right? Yeah. And you know you 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 better not libel somebody at the Daily Brew. so you you learn how this world works. You know. Uh, when you're at a paper like that, so for me it, it was fantastic. That's cool, man. I like I, I I'm always happy when people are able to, you know, go the traditional way and make it work for them. I happen to like the LA Times a lot. I think it's a good paper. Oh well, you know, um, we have a great deal on subscriptions. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> I get the Saturday. 
I get the Saturday LA Times. Do so you, huh? our food section, I just have to plug our food section because I do a little bit of food reporting for us, just uh, moved to Sunday. So I, I recommend the, taking the Sunday paper because we have a beautiful standalone food section. Oh, okay, cool. With, uh, Maybe two, we'll switch it over. Yeah, consider it. The 101 uh, Best Restaurants in LA just came out, and I am working my way through it with my wife. So what are you very up to? Excited. We're not doing it in order. We're sort, of, we're sort of expanding circles from where we live in Venice. Um, we just went to the temp reboot of Dear John's. I was just there too. Which uh, was very good, very cool. I really like Chef uh, Josiah. Uh, we live around the corner from Charcoal, his other restaurant, and we eat there all the time, and it's fucking amazing. Um, and so, and Hannah and I really like a basic meal from like the 60s. Sure. You like feel like you're in an episode of Mad Men when you're in there. Yeah. So, for those people who have no idea what we're talking about, there's a restaurant that looks like. Uh, it's like a steakhouse from like the 60s and they rebooted it for short and not a not permanent period of time like a year or something right that's right and it, and it was always called dear john's yeah they, it, they just have taken taken it over the original signs there yeah it looks the same from the outside but the food is good as fuck but it's like eating it it's like eating in a madman is a perfect description for it did you contribute to that uh, list is that part of i your did gig? not no i've only i've only done a handful of things for the food section i did do a story you might appreciate so you know i'm a lifelong angelino uh driving around la all these years you see burger places like yeah. Tom's number five, Big Tommy's, Tam's. And I always wondered, there's the original Tommy's and that's the famous chili burger stand in LA. So what's up with, you know, Tom's number five, Tom's number one. Is it uh, like Ray's in New York? It's exactly like Ray's in New York. So what I endeavored to do, this was this past summer, I endeavored to sort of catalog every single knockoff Tommy's. This is excellent. And map them and then do a taste test. So This is a righteous mission. So um uh, it was, uh, you know, a heartburn-inducing month or so. How many How many burgers did you eat? So I found more than sixty knockoff Tommies oh my God. in Southern California. <laughs> oh my God! Wait, are there any? But is the original just a one, or is it? A, is there's multiple originals? The, right? the original is a is a small chain with something like thirty three locations okay, in yeah. Southern California, Nevada. The original location is at the corner of Beverly and Rampart. It's been there since the forties, and it's an LA institution. Yeah, um, and it know, is good. And it's good. I remember going there as a kid after Dodger games with my dad to get big chili burgers. So you know, it's sort of like if you're an Angelino, you know, you've tried one of these. If you haven't tried one, you should. And. Um, uh, I found more than sixty knockoffs, and I wound up speaking to the to the family owners of uh, of the original Tommies, and I asked them about this. You know, how have you allowed this to proliferate? And it was fascinating. You know, they said that look, we're about quality, we're about operating our own business, and if the minute we get distracted and start filing lawsuits left and right, it's going to sort of take us away from our core mission. And I wound up speaking to intellectual property attorneys to basically say, like, is this the right approach? And generally, spe generally speaking, they said yes, actually. How interesting. So, uh, really a fun story. And, you know, look, it's not the same as the Big Willie story, but in a way it is in that it's like these weird L.A. tales just are what I love telling and, you know, yeah, yeah, I got yeah, to eat a lot yeah. of burgers for a living for a while too. So you know, how I mean, how does that work? If you, I mean, literally in a nuts and bolts way, because I don't really know how the really long form reporting like this works. I mean, if you go all right to your editor or whoever's uh, in charge of approving stories for you, and you go, listen, I want to, I want to eat at sixty burger places, <laughs> and it's going to take me obviously a few weeks at a minimum to do this. How do you judge the rate or something for a story like that? 
Can you is is that do you have to pitch that story and then and then negotiate a rate for that? Or are you like a salary dude? Is no, that... we're all salaried. Oh, you, know, you if are you're, if you're on staff. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Well, that certainly helps. Sure, but you know, I've got to pitch that story. You know, and you know that is sort of a little bit off the beaten path, and it takes really creative editors with open minds to see how that story would work, right? Of course, the story is the story is why they allow it to continue, and that philosophy of the original versus. Did you talk to the owners of the copycats too? I did. And what, what were they saying? Well, a handful just hung up on me when they heard what it was Obviously, about. Obviously, yeah. Um, You're like, hey, I'm a customer. I bought, <laughs> I bought your shitty burger. <laughs> well, also, I should be clear. I did not eat at all sixty something burger places. I wound up trying ten. Oh. Um, we did a we did a video uh, I don't consider this thorough enough research. I'm sorry. I just I just I dismiss we could, I dismiss your entire premise. We now. can try the remaining fifty something, you know, next week or something. I'll like that. I'll throw a dart at a board with a bunch of them on it and go for it. Let's try it let's try and knock off Tommy Burger. I've never been to one. Yeah, I'll well, go. start with a fake. Yeah, and then, and then yeah. we're like, "Wow, this sucks." <laughs> so, um, so we tried ten. Lucas Quan Peterson is a, a colleague of mine at the LA Times, and he was brave enough to do this with me. So we did try ten. But to answer your question, um, I did speak to one of the owners who was uh, of a knockoff Tommy's, who was very open in that he copied Tommy's. <laughs> um, you and, see, they got the Big Mac. I got the Big Mick. Right. But one guy, you know, a, a common explanation that I heard in the course of reporting that story was that, you know, people would say, hey, my name's Thomas and yeah. I love chili burgers. Yeah, yeah. And and actually in talking to the to the IP attorneys about this, they said that's why trademarking a, a name of business with a person's name in it is not the best route because mm-hmm. there are a lot of Thomases out there who like burgers. Mm-hmm. Right. And they can name their restaurant after themselves. Yeah. Um, it was a trip. But now, uh, more importantly, fun. though. Did any of the knockoffs actually have a better burger than the original? No. no. None of them did. Hard no. Really? <laughs> yeah. I did mean, they were, get close? So there was a place that you might uh, want to know about because it's not far from you in Marina Del Rey called Thomas Hamburgers, mm-hmm. which was easily, I know that one. which was easily, not only was it the closest to an actual original Tommy's burger, but it was easily the best of the imitators. The one on Washington? I think it is on a Yo, Washington. Yo, I can walk to that shit. Dinner tonight, son. <laughs> and what was interesting about it, it they they really adhered to the Tommy's formula. So that means you know a plain bun, uh-huh. um, you know no lettuce, no mayo. Um, it's very simple. It's chopped onions. It's a, th- a thick slice of tomato, and uh, that's about it. Good um, to know. There it is. So that's Thomas the hamburgers. Check that's it out. That's the one. That's it's it's right around the corner from my house. That's I will fuck with that a thousand percent. Sorry, we're a little inside baseball with y'all, but if you come visit me in L.A., go to Thomas Hamburgers. If you're not going to go to the original, definitely go to the original. Um, that's cool, man. Did you now your Dotson, your 240Z, uh, is obviously now that we know the family connection. But is this Dotson connected to your family, or do you just did you just buy this once? No, on this your was own? my grandfather's car. Oh, perfect. Well, that's cool. fantastic. It's very fresh. So, the wheels rule. It's like uh, the uh, what is that turbine style? We can call that. Fa- uh, yeah, I think you can call it turbine style. Fan so, style, something like that. So those would have been a, a, a sort of a showroom option. You would have put those on in the dealership. Uh, the dealer would have sold you sold you those wheels. Um, this was not my grandfather's car from '72. It is a '72. I think he had gotten sort of nostalgic for this car because he'd driven so many over the years. And I want to say in the early '80s he wound up getting this car. Uh-huh. Uh, he restored it, um, but then sort of stopped driving it like you know you know sometimes happens and it had been sort of parked on a lot at the family dealership around in the late 90s and when I first saw it I asked my dad what it was and he said it was my grandfather's and 
the rest is history. Um, it's excellent. I love it. It's a great. It's a great, great color. It's yep. just. I mean, it's the white, but it really period with the wheels looks good. It's great yeah. body body color and uh, and uh, the bumpers aren't like you know they're American bumpers, but they're not gigantic. So right? yeah, because it's a seventy two, it doesn't have the big the big bumpers from you know seventy three seventy four. It's um, kind of like the pure version of the two forty Z. It's such a good shape. It really is. And you know, it's a thrill to drive. It's got 150 horsepower and inline six, and like, it's great. You know, it's, they're nice. I don't cars. drive it enough. They're good fun. That's not the daily. No, even normal car. No, we should talk about the daily though. What is the daily awesome too? What's the daily? So I, I, I don't know if awesome is the word that I would use, but it's I think it's interesting. So, <laughs> so I drive a Hyundai Nexo, which is a hydrogen fuel cell car. Oh, cool. And I, I can see you you're sort of that? slowly falling asleep as you nah, hear those I words mean, in I, combination. You no, know, I mean I'm 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 kind of I am interested to see what that's like. Are you an actual paying customer for that? I am. So I leased it. Okay. Um. So I, you know, I'm the son of a car it's dealer. A fairly attractive vehicle, isn't there it? There it is. I have it in that color. Is that um, in Jewish racing gold? <laughs> kind of. It's that's, it's got a it's got like a five percent pink to it outside when you see it. Oh, so no, my orange. uncle, my uncle who was also a car dealer, calls it flesh colored. So not not exactly appealing. <laughs> that's but fucking gross. <laughs> wow. But <actually. laughs> he's not wrong. So let me tell you about this car because I have seen maybe one other one on the road in the last year. Uh-huh. So you know there are three companies these days that make fuel cell cars that you can lease. So you've got Honda, Toyota, and now Hyundai. And Hyundai had done this. Does with, BMW not have one? They had a seven series, right? For a, a while, I don't know yeah, if you yeah. can still buy or lease that, Maybe but I know not. what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had been interested in a car. Uh, you know, I had never owned an electric car before, uh, and I wanted to try something that was different from what I had always had. And uh, this, to me, clearly is the best looking, the most practical of the hydrogen cars that are out there. Yeah. You know, we don't even need to speak of the Toyota Mirai and what it looks like. No, right. It's, it's 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 heinous. Yeah. So it's a bad future car. But look, because <laughs> I I have to say I'm the son of a car dealer. I like a good deal. And when I heard about the deal on these cars, I was I was floored by them. And and I should say Honda and Toyota offer the same sort of incentives uh-huh. as as Hyundai. But the one that always sort of people are stunned by is when you lease this car. They give you a fuel card, and uh-huh. it's loaded, in the case of my car, with $13,000 to buy your hydrogen fuel with. So you, and pay, this is no secret. so you pay zero for fuel over the cost of the car, Right. Much. So over the life of the lease, I did some simple math. It yeah. looks like I won't be paying for fuel. And I think Mirai owners and Clarity owners get the same uh, get the same sort of incentive, and it's, okay. it's really enticing. All right. So how, but what is the trade-off? How inconvenient is it for you to not pay for fuel in this car? So... That's obviously money. that's obviously the issue with hydrogen cars, right? right? It's all about infrastructure and whether they can build enough of these stations, and and as a result of that, I believe you can only buy or lease this car in in California. Mm-hmm. Um, look, there's there's a, an always on display uh, in the center stack that tells you where the nearest hydrogen station is. Uh-huh. I will tell you that I've driven this car all over Southern California, you know, f- you know, on the weekends for my job, mm-hmm. and I've never been more. Then I want to say ten miles from a station, you know, all okay. over Orange County, and I, and I will tell you where I live. Um, I'm never more than a mile or two from a station. Well, that's pretty good, truly. But a mile or two is good if it's you know in L- in L A. Ten miles is a long way. Sure, but there's well, in Orange County, not so much. I mean, like 
you know, if you, it seems like if you're on the west near the coast, oh, like you have terrible. a lot. It's it not seems bad. like there's if options were, along the 405. There's one in Marina del Rey. There's up by Beverly Hills. Is one. It's not horrible, right? No. So there's there's one right by the Grove. There's one um, in in the Hollywood area. There's one in Pasadena. But I want to say roughly the same number as Tesla superchargers, but give to, or take. To be fair, if you live near downtown or South Central or Cerritos, I mean, basically yeah, like yeah. east of the coast, yeah. you're kind of on an island. Like yeah. it's pretty. Yeah. pretty far. Right. And so I felt comfortable leasing this car for three years, you know, as an experiment almost yeah. to see what it would be like to live with something like this. Um, and I have to say it's, you know, uh, I'm certainly not writing about this car. Um, this is my own car that I leased and uh, I really do enjoy it. Um, it's, you know, it's not like a Tesla, but it is an electric car. So you have that sort of instant torque off the line and it's got a hatchback. I can throw a bunch of stuff in the trunk. And what's your full range? So of- that's the other thing about this car. The range, I think the stated range is 380 miles per uh-huh. Philip. I get around 350 miles per tank, but uh-huh. that's that's legit. It's pretty good. Miles. Yeah, it's I mean, good. that's more than I had an E39 wagon was my last car. Wow, that was that the you know, interior? Yeah, that's the car. Oh, wow. The interior is funky. I'm not, oh, yeah, a fan of, I'm not a fan of two-spoke steering wheels in general. That trend could die, but I like it. It's funky. It's got a really future-y uh, kind, of, kind of display happening. Yeah, no. It's I, pretty cool. It's been, mm-hmm. it's is this been, thing affordable? So... They they have deals on a lease, and, yeah. and I don't know if you can purchase them. I, I lease mine. I think that like the MSRP on the car is right around sixty thousand dollars. Well, that's not cheap. Okay, well, that okay. just well it justifies that interior. If you told me that thing was thirty five grand, I'd go, oh my god, you're getting a deal. But you but know. one but there are other incentives beyond the um, the fuel card. So Hyundai, if you lease the car, Hyundai pockets the federal tax break on this, which instantly drops down the price of the lease. Right. Um, and then there's a California rebate on these cars as well. Can you uh, carpool lane them by yourself? And you can carpool lane them by that's, yourself. See, that's the jam. So it kind of adds up to a pretty enticing package. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd have another one at once my lease is up, but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it right now. And look, I've never had a gas car that gets 350 miles on a tank of gas. I don't think. I mean, my hmm. last car certainly didn't. Oh, I we've had. I've had Good a point. I mean, I, I'm. We've had a. My my dad has had a, a Volkswagen. Excuse me, an Audi Q7 diesel, which did like. You know, would do six fifty or so if you were, oh, you know, wow. chilling. Well, on, it was a, you know, on, yeah. on, but of course, it was a cheaty. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a little asterisk there. It was a cheaty, and so you know, but it's, but a big range is nice. Yeah, you know, no, it's, especially when you have to sort of think about where you're going to fill up. Totally, totally. That's an interesting thought. I think. I wonder if I can get one as a press car. I'm sure I can. It's a good looking vehicle. Really is. The yeah, it's got a sort of a Tron headlight thing going on. You know, Lexus the, in the front. You know what the mouth? You, you look like a watch guy. I see you're wearing a little vintage a watch. watch. Doesn't the mouth on this uh, remind you of one of those uh, Constantine Chaikin Joker watches a little bit? Have you seen those? I do know what you're talking the about. Constantine. It's a. Uh, That's a deep cut right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's like C H A Y K I N. I think C H. Very very uh, divisive watches. Some people love them. Some people hate Joker. Those the Joker watch. I think they're fun, right? I think Joker watches the Joker watches a real watch nerd's watch, so pull up a picture of that. Whoa! But the the mouth reminds me of it. There's the special edition Jokers. The the eyes are the the time hours and minutes, and each one is a Dude, googly eye. I am eye. into this. Yeah. If I had money, like this is like the first watch I've seen. I'm excited about. Yeah. Because so it's the, ridiculous. The eyes, you know, are googly eyes because they move independently of each other. So it makes all these fucking wonky ass faces at you, which is really fun. How much is this? I believe they're around thirty-five thousand dollars. 
I think they're pretty expensive. Closed tab. I think they're, <laughs> they're at least they're at least twenty. Yeah, I mean, they're it doesn't there. look yeah. cheap. That's cool. They don't make a lot of them. I mean, it's, I, th- I think it's like a guy who makes these. Right. I mean, the, cool. the world of watchmaking is just so stuffy that there's a guy out there who's producing that. Is you know, it's exciting. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, there's one for sale. What is it? A sixteen grand, fourteen grand used. Okay, better than I thought. I mean, that's half of what I thought it was. So. Yes, 14, 16 for a Joker. Not so bad. I mean, yes, very, very expensive. But, oh, the carbon fiber one at the bottom. That one's real scary looking. Whoa. It's like <laughs> Hobgoblin. That's like wow. a Terminator job. <laughs> That's also being sold in Russia with price on request. Right, yeah. Someone will see this and they'll either know it's worth money and it's cool or they'll think you bought a kid's watch. Yeah. Like this really doesn't land in the middle at all. What do you What do you got on there? It's so I've got nice. on a... Um, uh, uh, a Hoyer Otavia Viceroy. It's a vintage one. It's very cool. It is vintage. So this is, you know, the the Hoyers that were uh, made and then in a sort of a marketing effort sold with Viceroy cigarettes. So mm. dual uh, logo it, is excellent. Right. So no dual logo on this, but the deal was. Was it the color scheme or something? No. The de- it was. Sim- this was basically identical to the non voice Viceroy Otavia, but the deal was this. Uh, if you were a, a Viceroy smoker and you clipped the coupons on the back of the carton and you sent them in, you'd get a discount on your watch. So this normal version was something like $250. Mm-hmm. So if you clipped enough coupons, it became an $88 watch, I want to say. Yes. So it was the way- Smoking works, folks. You get discounts. <laughs> right. Can you Smoke imagine that you kind get... of promotion these days? Bro, the Marlboro Cyclones. There you the go. The Marlboro Miles. You remember those things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Cyclones were the jam. Our friend had one of those. Our friend Seth Rose had one and flipped one. Targa Roof, Marlboro, it's SYC. I got to see a picture of this. You don't remember the Marlboro Cyclones? Oh, God, how fucking fire were they? They look great. What a a phenomenal. Wow. I think you had to smoke. I mean, how many cigarettes did you have to smoke to get one of these things? It had a tar- it had a T-top. It's got it was the only one to have I mean, a T-top. Folks, we're looking at a red Cyclone with T-tops, a tonneau cover, and they are going to tell everyone that you got this through cigarettes. The there's a badging on graphic. the windshield. There's a Marlboro badge on the door. Like All right, so let me, ask, let me ask you a question. So yeah. this shows up on Bring a Trailer tomorrow, Yeah. right? What does it go for? Oh, it's a hundred thousand dollars to a hundred to one hundred twenty-five. Wow. I think I think Seth sold his in the eighties. Wow. See if you can find an auction result. I think he took it to Barrett or, or one of them, um, and yeah, he got it. It was it's a big ticket item. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go for sale. GMC. Oh no, Marlboro. One of the, the estimate seventy-five to eighty thousand. Yeah. I remember They're those pricey. cyclones back in the day. They're um, cool, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They're you know those all those vintage trucks are just. Tru- fast, fast uh, street trucks and like real body on frame SUVs are really on the way up right, right now. Yeah, what did that sell? What did that black one just sell for you, had Zach? Uh, they wanted fifty. Fifty that for was, a, black, was a non-Marlboro. Four thousand miles though. Yeah, they don't drive good. I mean, the problem with those is you really want to have one to just kind of like dick around with once a year and really just look at it in your garage. You don't really want to drive that around. That's a beautiful two-spoke steering wheel. What an interior. Same as as the Corvette. Same as the Corvette. The steering wheel is horrendous. Yeah. When they had to switch the Corvette to airbags in 91, they then left the two-spoke wheels on the Cyclone from the 80s. It was great. It was great. Get in the Super Chat the next few minutes, folks. We're going to come to your questions soon. The Cyclone steering wheel looks like this. This is the logo of the D (laughs) Hotel Hotel. in Las Vegas. And when I saw this, I was like, that looks like the poker chip they give out at this hotel. There's a hotel called the D? Yes. It is on. It's in Old Vegas area. Really? Yeah. 
Is it they? I mean, they're aware of the double entendre. I imagine. I'm surely. Okay. Just wow. I love it. I love their self awareness. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, do you know? Anything about this area where we're at here from the 60s? Have you ever looked in the Thunder Alley they called Jefferson here? No, no. Tell me about it. It was I don't. where like uh, Shelby was around the corner from here, um, as I'm sure your grandfather probably knew all these people. Uh, Shelby was here. Guildstrand was here. Iskendrian Cams was here. And Edelbrock were all here. And they used to like race each other where they're testing products on Jefferson. Oh, that's like, a great right story. outside of here. Huh. I was talking to Bruce Meyer about it. He said it can come poke around the Peterson archives and see if there's pictures of it somewhere. There's got to be. That's I hope what a there great is. name, too. Thunder Alley? Yeah. Hell yeah. That's a yeah. great name. That's cool. Uh, should we answer some people's questions? People want to ask us. People ask us all stuff from the uh, from the from the fan base here, and look, we got we can open with a watch question. Here, this is in your wheelhouse. No all worries. Right. Justin says, "Should I get a Rolex Submariner GMT or Yachtmaster? I like the gold bezel and the silver bracelet with gold trim, and all three models have a similar version for about the same price." Well, the Sub and the Yachtmaster are basically the same watch, the different bezel, and the GMT has a complication. I say GMT if you travel. But that's just me. I mean, if you can get a GMT, right? Correct. I presumably, I think they mean they usually mean used. Okay. Usually. So I'm a vintage guy. So I love if if I were to get a new watch, I'm always interested in something that sort of speaks to the heritage of the company. So if they still made a, a no date sub, do they make a no date sub? They do. If they so they make a no date sub. I'm not a Rolex guy, but that would be the watch I would recommend. I like it. My dad has a no date sub. What else do you have in your collection besides this cool Viceroy thing? So. Um, what's like the crown jewel of the what's collection? What's the crown jewel? This one's pretty, if you're a vintage yeah. guy, that one's pretty crown jewel That's approaching. Yeah, and this is sort of a real sort of racing-inspired watch. And when I was doing a lot of the, the video shoots and things like that for the Big Willie podcast, I had this on my wrist. Mm. So it was fun. Um, I, I'm really into uh, vintage Breitling. I think Breitling is totally underappreciated. I think partly because of the designs of their contemporary watches mm. are so sort of difficult to swallow. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've got a- 52 millimeters? doesn't work for you right no? right you don't like bentley flying spur winding rotors yeah, you're not that about doesn't that work for me <laughs> but so like you know i've got a reverse panda top time oh, from yeah. the 60s that's just sort of really elegant beautiful chronograph you kind of have to have a smaller wrist to have a top time they're not big yeah i want to say it's like 38 millimeters yeah um it might even be 36 um so smaller Zach's watch. got the, the a, a really the bright leg for bentley diamonds <laughs> I think that's might have even started as a Navitimer, but whoa. Yeah. This actually started as a roulette wheel in <laughs> Vegas, and <laughs> they shoved watch parts under the center. You know, the somebody, center. someone makes a roulette wheel watch. Have you seen that? I think it's Jacob. It might be Jacob, I but then there's an actual about. roulette, a functional roulette wheel in it. That's it's wild. Cra- I think it's called the Casino Watch, the Astronomia Gambler that has that has a, a an actual... Uh, uh, roulette wheel in it. It's ridiculous. That's a trip. It fuck. <laughs> that, see that the the little button on the left there. You you spring that back and it winds it up and it spins the ball around like a fucking pinball machine. Oh. There's animations of that shit working. It's ridiculous. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Brad is looking to buy a used Golf R soon. Probably a Mark Seven point five. Any issues to look out for or advice you would give? I don't issues to look out for. I don't know if I don't really follow up with these cars 
if they have ongoing issues. I mean, I suppose you could poke around the forums. DSG means someone's probably not beating the crap out of the clutch. Those, those gearboxes hold up. Um, get a PPI, man. I mean, spend the 300 bucks and have an independent shop go through it. That's my answer for everybody all the time. The 300 bucks may save you from buying something terrible. Otherwise, if it's a Mark 7.5, it's pretty new and it should be in good shape. I can't read that, Zach. Can you read that? Um, this guy lives in LA. He, his mom has a 67 Riv nice. that he's had forever, and it needs paint and bodywork. No rust. Black with vinyl top. Needs a good shop in LA. Do you know a place? Does your, does your family know a place, A shop Dan? that works on old American cars in LA. And should he do Acura and Mod Steels? I mean, oh, yes. Oh, Mod Steels? Yes, he definitely should. Um, a good, just, God, it's so weird. People always ask me for like, who could do a reasonable restoration on something? Like, I literally don't know. And the thing is, there probably is like a guy who that's his livelihood, fixing yeah. old Rivieras, right? Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but I'm sorry he to say, I, I don't actually know. I, I should really... F- if you're listening and you operate a body shop in LA that does good, honest work for regular cars slash entry level restorations, shoot me an email because people ask me about this shit, and I don't I don't have anybody to refer to people to. I wish I did. Yeah, we know if like you said seven you wanted figure a hot rod. car, yeah, for three hundred grand. Like I got you. You want a million dollar pro touring build? I know the guy. But if you have reasonable money and a reasonable car, I I just I don't have anywhere to send you. But I may we'll take this opportunity. If you're out there, hit us up. Sorry. Um, Gabe Gabe Delaria Delaria has a gutted shitbox ninety three Celica, and he bought it for five hundred and it runs. Should he do a budget off road or a parking lot racer? Does that mean autocross? You think? I think that. Probably I think that's autocross. what that means. So, uh, budget off road or autocross? I mean, budget off road because you don't need to do anything. It is budget off road. It's, it's done. already budget off road. The thing about a five hundred dollar car is that's an off roader. Because the key to off-roading is not giving a shit about your car. It's nothing to do with your shocks or tires or roll cage or anything. You just have to not care if that car makes it home or not. That's it. And you've got that, sir. Just bring a chase car. <laughs> um, Nick D'Amico says uh, he's going to be showing your latest Westside Collector Car Storage video to his high school engineering students to teach them about low-impact development. Uh, all right. Thank you. Very thank cool. you. Thank you for the rev- Make all of them pull it up on their individual iPhones and watch it, please. Don't show it on a projector. <laughs> I, I need those. I need those pennies because of low-impact development. I'm just kidding. There's a video out today of, of my construction project, and we talk about water usage. Um, where can we get the podcast, sir? So you can find Larger Than Life on any podcast podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, you can also find it at latimes.com, um, and you can find a whole suite of stories, videos, uh, vintage photography related to the world of Big Willie Robinson at our website as well. And there's a, uh, a five-minute kind of trailer on YouTube uh, on the LA Times YouTube channel, Remembering Street Racing Lousy, so you can get a little primer before you get into it. Is there a, uh, a long-form written piece at all, or is it all in podcast form? So there's a two-part uh, written series that you know ran over the summer when the podcast debuted, and you can find that on our website. Um, I believe the landing page is latimes.com slash LTL. And... Um, we also have a per episode guide. So as you're listening to the oh, podcast, oh, for like assets, visual assets. Yeah. So as you're listening to the podcast, you could basically scroll through these pages, and there's videos <gasps> and photography that are tailored to the episode. 
Um, so, uh, you know, Big Willie happened to have been friends with Otis Chandler, whose family owned the Los Angeles Why do Times. I know that name? Oh, yeah, that's why. Okay. Right. And right. he had been the publisher from 1960 to 1980. Otis was a huge gearhead himself. He had a mammoth car collection. Huh. And um, they were actually friends, which is another strange tie-in to the LA Times with this story. And um, as a result, or perhaps not as a result, but one way or another, Willie wound up getting his share of coverage in the LA Times over the years. So we pulled up a ton of archival stories that are a part of our, our website where you can read how the LA Times covered him back in the day. Who is the most interesting individual surviving character from this gang? So the Brotherhood of Street Racers lives on, obviously. Um, and... Uh, they were so welcoming to me. I mean, they let me into this world and gave me an opportunity to be a part of it for a brief time as a reporter. One of the main figures who who you were, will hear throughout the podcast is a street racer named Fabian Arroyo. You can actually see him on the right, right there with the long with ponytail. With the long hair from the back, yeah. And Fabian is this, a- This a, guy here. It, is is a very well-known LA street racer. Um, and he was instrumental in helping me sort of understand Big Willie. He was very close with Willie. He lived with him for a time toward the end of Willie's life. And I think he really maybe understood Willie um, better than anybody I spoke to. So I learned a lot from Fabian. Uh, but there were other characters, um, uh, other figures who really, um, I can't say it enough, really welcomed me into a world that otherwise I would have not had access to. Mm. Well, now that you've covered Big Willie and Big Tommy, what's left? <laughs> Do you have, are you on? Are you on a new, a new mission right now, or are you just on the promo tour for this guy here? No, I'm. I'm beginning work on a handful of sort of interesting, weird LA stories uh, that I've been wanting to tell for a while. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but car uh, related or no? So nothing sort of down the middle car related, but I feel like kind of that sort of world that I'm interested in. Whether it's cars or food or sort of gambling in LA, there's a lot of intersections. And so I'm kind of back in the, you know, the lab kind of working on a handful of things that, you know, I, I think if you, if you, if you enjoy larger than life, they might speak to you as well. Cool, man. That's awesome. I love them about it. Um, I'm last question before we get out of here. Favorite cheap meal in LA. All right. Well, I'm not going to say Tommy's, um, although I do like it. All right. So, uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to say because we're not too far from it, and whenever I'm on the west side, I need to stop by, mm. I got to go with Tito's Tacos. Tito's Tacos is good. I like it. I, I The people born in LA worship, thing. worship thing. the place, and I am not as, I don't understand the super long lines, but it is delicious. Can I give you a, a just one pro tip? Yeah. You got to go to the inside lines. Do not mess with the exterior okay. lines, all right? Good tip. I mean, I feel like when I bite into one of those tacos, it's like I'm, you know, it's I'm five years old and it's like the summer and mm -hmm. my, you know, my parents drove us over there to, you know, have like an early dinner. So like it's taps into something for me and I think a lot of Angelinos. So I love Tito's. I mean, I don't know. There's it's so a, it's many. a good one. It is a good choice. It's like choice. a greasy spoon kind of yeah, town, right? It's a good choice. I'm I'm mine is I mean, mine kind of sucks, but I Kogi, man. Yeah. The, you, for mm -hmm. for 10 bucks you can't beat the flavor. Oh yeah. And also there's well, a new place in Venice called um, Teddy's Red Tacos. Oh have you, yeah. Have you heard? Have you been there yet? I, I haven't been there, but I've heard all about it. Totally new kind of taco, different from any taco I've had in the city, and it's absolutely. Don't they do delicious. birria tacos? The birria tacos, yeah. but this is the first time I've had a birria taco. It is yeah. delicious. All right, so let me give you on that note. Let me tell you one other thing that it's a place I go to with my dad. It's a birria restaurant in the Pico Union area, mm -hmm. so down Pico towards uh, downtown LA, and it's called El Parian. I want to say. 
uh, don't you know judge the pronunciation, yeah, but so it's El Parian, and they do um, goat birria the traditional way. Uh-huh. So you get a big bowl basically of goat stew, and um, Teddy's red is beef birria, which basically means they boil an entire cow until it turns to liquid. Remember the first time we had that ramen, ramen, and they told us oh, you're eating liquid pig right now. This is liquid cow. It's fucking great. <laughs> yeah. So, but you, but I highly recommend this place. Again, it's a cheap eat, right? Yeah. But um, it's so good. And again, you're like drenched in the sauce, and your nose is running because yeah. it's a little spicy. It's yeah. the whole thing. Oh, the best. It like cures diseases. It's the best. Yeah. I'm gonna try that one out. Write it down before I leave. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks, Daniel. That was excellent. We Appreciate will, I look it. forward to uh, to having you back next time you write something else about cars. No, no. Please thanks keep for that me. up. Uh, that's it for us. Do we have a show? Were you doing one with Musto, you said? You, I, that that may work? happen, but it seems unlikely because he's all the way out in Santa Ana. Sorry. If not, I will see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. The Smoking Tire Podcast is powered by Shout Engine. Get your own damn podcast at shoutengine.com. It's easy. All you need is a microphone connection to the internet and ideally something to say. Bye.